Welcome to the Sober by Design podcast, where we explore the many pathways to recovery and a better life through conversations with a wide array of guests. Whether you're sober curious, in recovery, or simply looking to improve your mental health and well-being, this podcast will have something for you. Each week, we sit down with inspiring guests from all walks of life who share their personal stories of struggle and triumph, offering valuable insights and practical advice on how to design a life worth living. From addiction and mental health to spirituality and creativity, we cover a wide range of topics that are relevant to anyone seeking to live a more fulfilling and authentic life. So join us on this journey of discovery, growth, and transformation, and start designing a new life. All right, everybody, welcome to the Sober by Design podcast. This week, I am speaking with Crystal Fideli. Crystal is a speaker and the founder of She's Recovered, and I am really excited to talk to Crystal tonight. Um, the pre-interview gave me a preview of, of what we might start to hear. So, um, Crystal, if you can just kind of introduce yourself and give us the, you know, your background. Yeah, of course. Thank you for having me. So, my name is Crystal Fideli, and I am a survivor of childhood trauma, sexual abuse, and alcohol addiction turned a speaker and creator she's recovered. And now I help women who have also survived trauma and alcohol addiction truly heal so they can get to living that amazing life that's waiting for them on the other side. Great. Um, <clears throat> typically on these episodes, what I like to do is is sort of ask the guests, about their childhood, where they grew up, how they grew up. It gives everybody a real foundation for who you are um, and sort of sets that baseline of, of your story. So if you can give us a little bit of an idea of what that looked like for you, you know, zero to 18-ish. Yeah, yeah. So obviously I share that I'm a survivor of childhood trauma and sexual abuse. And so uh, yeah, so basically, you know, my mom and my dad, they had me and I was a mistake. I know, according to God, I'm not a mistake. I get it. But according to them, you know, it was like, whoops, we got to get married now because that's what you did back then in that culture. And so they got married and then um, they were divorced by the time I was 18 months old. So you can uh, kind of surmise how that marriage went. But it was like a tornado meeting a volcano. And that was my three-year-old upstairs. I'm so sorry. <laughs> um, and so, so yeah. So, and then I, you know, my mom was very psychologically abusive. She was physically abusive. And then she went on to marry a man who, unfortunately, um, sexually abused me. Um, and, and, yeah. And so, finally, you know, I came out about what was happening to me. When I was 15, the summer of being 15, it was actually at youth group camp. It just kind of like poured out of me. Like it, I didn't even know where it came from. Um, and, but I kept it in for years just because I didn't know what would happen to my mom and my siblings. Um, my mom was very physically sick. She um, had a rheumatoid arthritis so she was pretty much crippled and she didn't even have a high school education so waitressing was her only thing so like a bad combination like you know not being able to um, do anything but waitress and you're like basically you know crippled um and so I just kept it in and then also of course my mom was very abusive so I didn't know who would protect my three younger siblings so I kept it to myself but it came pouring out um at youth group camp that summer and basically my mom went on to <laughs> choose my stepdad over me and created this narrative that I was lying and trying to destroy the family and half of the church uh, believed them as well. And of course it wasn't true. I was totally telling the truth about what happened to me. Their narrative that I was lying was not true. And then um, she lost custody of me and my bio father got me. And so I went to live with them. And um, I mean, everything was fine. I got a few years of uh, peace. And besides, you know, trying to recover from what I had been through. And, and yeah, and then by the time I was 18, 19, I was completely on my own. And I've been on my own ever since. And, you know, although nothing happened to me at my father's house, like what happened to me at my mother and stepfather's house, um, they did kind of go on to 
to use kind of extreme language, I guess, abandoned me too. And I think it's because they really didn't understand the effects that all that early chronic childhood trauma had on me. And I think they were kind of very judgmental of me. Um, so yeah, that's kind of zero to 18. Okay. Um, well, first, you know, I want to touch on a couple of things from that story. Um, first, the whole mistake part of your story. Um, one, it's such a hard thing to carry as a person, um, if that is your narrative. Um, I myself struggle with that narrative. Um, very similar sort of uh, story in, in for me. My parents, uh, my mom was young when she had me. Um, I believe she probably was pregnant at 17 and my father was older. And again, I've kind of carried this story that I was not supposed to be here for a long, long time. And um, up until recently, that's been my perception of who I am. And it's changed a little bit, um, which is also hard because once you have that idea in your head, you kind of wear it as like this. I don't want to call it a badge. That wouldn't be the right word, right? I mean, I think you kind of know what yeah. I'm getting at. It's like you have yeah, this yeah. idea of who you are and it's made you who you are. And now if, if that narrative changes, I think it, it does something to you. So one, really sorry that, that you have that. Um, and then second, obviously this the uh, the abuse is is something that is just life-altering. So those two things happening... You know, all of that is very tumultuous um, for you. Well, here, just so I, I can kind of place you, are you, is this all happening um, in New Jersey or are you somewhere else at that yeah. point? Yeah. Yeah. All in, let's see, Succoseta, Morris County, Warren County, New Jersey. Okay. Yeah. And were you like bouncing around a lot as a kid? Not really. I mean, I, we lived with my grandparents in their basement until age 10 in Succasana, New Jersey. And then we moved to Mansfield, New Jersey, Hackettstown yep. um, a, uh, in Warren County until I was 15. And then my father lived in Ringo's, uh, Flemington. Okay. Okay. Yeah, I know yeah. that area. I just wasn't sure if like you were having to like go from New Jersey to some other state and, you know, like adding even further chaos to the chaos. Okay. So yeah. that zero to 18, um, you said youth group, was that a religious youth group that you were in that you kind yeah. of, kind of told the world about? Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. and was that a big part of your childhood religion? Yeah. Um, so we grew up Catholic, I think, for about like the first 10 years. And I did the whole thing, communion, confession, all the things. And then we started going to a, uh, a Christian, like a Protestant church. Okay. It was called Manfield, Mansfield Baptist Church. Now it's Abundant Life Community Church. Okay. So, you know, you put this out into the world at 15. Your life continues on from there. Where do you go at like 18? Are you still home? Are you making a change at that point? When does, because I know your story kind of changes at some point, right? Like, are you drinking at this point? Or are you like covering yeah. up things? Yeah, I definitely okay. had a fake ID. Okay. Definitely. Okay. <laughs> um, it worked back then in like liquor stores and everything. But um, yeah, so I, yeah, I started begin, I started to begin to drink um, college, college parties drinking games, which were so much fun, by the way. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, and then I slowly started to notice after a few years, you know, that um, uh, my alcohol, um, you know, like everyone around me could sort of stop, uh, but I kind of kept going and I drank a little bit too much. Mm. Yeah. yeah, so that was just college time. So at that point, did you, un like... Again, like I can kind of relate to that. I started drinking in college, the games, the whole thing. And it was like, yeah, it was too much. But like, yeah, it was college. So whatever, right? Like you could kind of yeah. absolve yourself. Um, did it continue on to the next phase 
Is that what? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. It did. Uh, yep. I was, I had a job where I drank a lot at, and um, I think that's where it kind of started really to turn for me. Hmm. Was it like, I think I started to notice that um, I drank way more than a lot of my, I mean, but it was college. So everybody was drinking so much, but yeah. around me, but, um, but yeah, I think I started to notice in college that I started drinking a little bit too much and I was having tr- uh, trouble controlling um, my consumption, but then it really became completely out of control. Like when I had a job that I drank a lot at. Okay. So. And then, so your, your life's kind of, you're, you're working, you have um, your college is behind you. When, I guess, at what, what age were you at here? So I guess we're in my early to mid, yeah, early twenties, like 23, 24. And I, so I also didn't have like this traditional track for education. So I, oh, you want me to get into that? Yeah, um, sure. So like, I feel like the normal thing was that all my friends were accepted to four year universities right out of high school, they went for four years, maybe they went for a master degree after that. But for me, I didn't have any like parents to help me with my FAFSA, the mm-hmm. um, the application you have to fill out for any kind of grant or financial aid. So, I, and I had a hard time getting an independency override because I wasn't completely like removed and put into the resource care, foster care system. I my father took custody of me. So technically, I guess he was supposed to sign the FAFSA, but our relationship was completely, you know, broken at this point. Um, So they, I remember I was accepted to the College of New Jersey and they pushed through the independency override, but I don't know if they really were supposed to. They just kind of like, they really like overrode the override, you Mm -hmm. know, and um and so, but then at this point, it's like I'm working six nights a week and I live an hour up North Jersey in Somerville and TCNJ is obviously down Trenton area. Mm-hmm. And so I totally wasn't set up. It was the day before school was about to start. And so I totally wasn't set up. Just like, this is the story of my life and was always in the wrong place at the wrong time. <laughs> so, but I went ahead and I did it and, um, I failed out. I, I had a 1.1 GPA. Okay. And they told me, they said, go back to community college, prove that you can do college level coursework for two semesters, reapply. So I went back for one semester and then I reapplied after one semester. There's the rebel in me. But I was accepted again and I brought my GPA up from a 1.1 to a 3.3. Um, and I swear, like, you know, till this day, it even has got gotten better, but. I swear that I've always had some sort of like learning disability because it's funny because I have two grad degrees, one in research analysis, the other one in child advocacy and policy. But I, I have a hard time like, um, like reading for a long time and like comprehending. Mm -hmm. So I don't know if it's like a learning disability, but, and it has to be quiet around me or I can't concentrate. I used to get so frustrated. So I think I was struggling with that back then. And then also I was completely on my own, like, whereas everyone around me seemed to have parents in a family to go home to, I was completely on my own. I was, I was homeless actually once, uh, but when I failed out originally, uh, my time at TCNJ before I failed out my time there originally, um, and I was homeless like twice after that, once when I had my first kid, I'm married now and we bought her home, but there was a time where I was a single mom too, and I was um, like homeless. But, but yeah, you know, it was tough not really having anybody. Like literally, no mom, no dad, no sibling, no cousin, no aunt, no uncle, nobody in my life. Um, but yeah, so that was my that was my twenties until I had my daughter at age twenty seven. So okay, so you had your first your first daughter at age twenty seven. What? What happened at that point? Were you, you're still drinking or maybe, you know, not at that point, but like, you know, right after that, do you just pick back up into this lifestyle of, you know, coping? Yeah, yeah. So basically from, 
Yeah. So like basically from 18 to 27, like nearly a decade, I always say that I just, I, you know, so I, 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 I started to notice that I had trouble controlling my alcohol consumption in quantity, how much I drank when I did and in frequency, how many, you know, times that I drank and at my height of addiction, I guess you could say, I, um, like I was drinking probably every other day. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes I would take two days off, uh, just because honestly to sleep it off, I, I was exhausted. It, it's exhausting, you know, drinking 25 drinks a day, mm-hmm. you know, um, all day, every day. But so I started to notice it's, it got worse and worse and worse and I sought help. Right. So I went to therapy. I went to doctors. I went to support groups such as AA and celebrate recovery. I went to, um, you know, the front of church after church service for prayer. I had accountability partner. I prayed begging God for the answer and any, everyone had one answer for me. And that was like, if I couldn't moderate my alcohol consumption, then I needed to um, abstain, like completely be sober and for the rest of my life. And you can't even eat food that was made with alcohol and all the things. And so I tried really hard, but I just couldn't do it. There were times when I was able to go stretches of time, you know, being sober. Um, But those obsessive and strong thoughts and cravings, that white knuckling always won Mm -hmm. eventually. And I picked up right where I left off and like no time had passed. If I left off, you know, drinking 20 drinks in a sitting, it would start right, right there. It was like time did not heal. And so, you know, one day when I was 27, I had just had my daughter. Yeah, I was 27 or I might have been 28. I think I was 28. I was 28. Yes. Okay. So I came across this TED Talk and the research lover in me, um, <laughs> you know, I love I love TED Talks. Mm-hmm. And um, so I came across this TED Talk and the speaker of the TED Talk, you know, claimed to have found the cure to alcoholism. And I thought it was way too good to be true. I'm like, you just take one pill before you drink alcohol and then boom, it's cured. That sounds like way too good to be true. And so originally I discounted it, but then eventually I became really desperate. I mean, I was already so desperate enough, right? But I was like, you know what, self, if I don't try it, it's not going to work for me. But if I try it, it just might work for me. So I tried it. Well, I tried to try it. So this, you think it would be the happily ever after, but it's not. So I went to my family doctor and I told them basically everything I just told you about what I had been suffering from, what I had tried, that I was like failing, failing, failing. I really wanted to get better. And I'm like, hey, I came across this this thing. It's called the Sinclair Method. And I was like, I would really like to try it, but I need this medication for it. And they refused to look at the research. Mm-hmm. They refused to look at the clinical trials, they refused to look at any of that stuff. And, um, you know, the doctor basically just tried to tell me, well, you know, keep a drink log. And if you had a drink or two, you know, just stop. Like, you don't need to drink more as if I hadn't already told her. <laughs> but I guess she didn't get it. And she's like, I just don't think you need the medication. Then the clinical director of the practice came in because I insisted on speaking to a doctor that was higher up because I am that person that advocates for what I need, for what my friends need, for what my kids need, for what my clients need. Like, I am that person. Um, And so I've learned how to do it with grace and love, you know, over the years. But um, I am that person. And so the clinical director of the practice basically told me that she thought I was trying to go through the back door for treatment. Then I went to another doctor and they told me that I was trying to be my own doctor and treat myself. And then I went to another doctor and they just basically refused and told me to get out of their office. So I was obviously really, you know, so discouraged at this point. And I'm just like, I'm going to like die like this, you know? And, um, and so, but I kept on searching and I came across a doctor who was willing to prescribe me the medication. The only issue is the doctor did not take health insurance. Um, and so I, but I was like, you know what, I need this medication. So I was a single mom at the time, really struggling to afford my basic necessities, but I took for my rent money, sorry, landlord. And I paid this doctor, I got my medication and it, you know, with, I got it, my medication so easy and I started doing the Sinclair method. And within two to three months, I better 
I was able to control my alcohol consumption. I was able to drink like a normal person, you know, having a drink or two or three if I liked. Um, and my frequency of drinking like really went down because I literally lost all desire. Um, like right now, I haven't drank in probably, I was just asking my husband this the other day, probably like a year and a half or something like that. I have no desire for alcohol. 40% of people who do the Sinclair method, I forget if it's 40% or 60%, but it's, I mean, either way, it's a really amazing percentage, right? Um, mm-hmm. Just go on to lose all desire for it because the neurochemistry behind alcohol addiction, people don't understand how strong it is. But, and now I know if I ever want to have a glass of wine, a cold one or two for the football games, like I know what I have to do. I just have to take my 50 milligrams of Deltrexone one hour before I want to consume alcohol. So that's my story with that. And, um, oh, after uh, three months of me being on the Sinclair method, my therapist of five years fired me because she didn't agree with my approach. Mm-hmm. Um, even though it was working and she was happy to see me fail time and time again with the 12 step sobriety attempt method. And, uh, and yeah. And so then basically I, you know, I was like, and you know, was I weak? Was I a bad person? Was I, you know, all the things that, you know, people tell you if you don't stay sober, and I, I, you know, went on to earn two grad degrees, um, as I mentioned earlier, one in research analysis and the other one in advocacy and policy. And I dedicated all my research towards the subject, alcohol recovery, alternative paths to alcohol recovery. And what is the true root cause of someone who cannot control their alcohol consumption, no matter what they do? And I'm not talking about someone who is able to control it, but chooses to drink too much. I am talking about the person like me who cannot control it no matter what they do. So when they are at the bar at 9.52 p.m., you know, in Jersey, right? They mm-hmm. go all close at 10 p.m. Um, is like, you know, looking at the clock, like, oh my God, I need to get my six pack or my 12 pack. I should probably get a 12 pack because I know a six is not going to be enough and I need to, you know, have more alcohol. Like when's my neck? You know, that's the person I'm talking about. And, um, so yeah, um, so that's, you know, my, oh, okay, okay that's what I was going to say. And so then I, you know, went to go take a seat on the other side of the table, right, to become an expert in the very field that I once sought help from. And I realized, oh my God, my story is not unique. Out of all the people who struggle with alcohol addiction, only 10 out of 100 people will even seek help. That means that 90% of people will never even seek help. They will live their entire lives suffering. They will die alcohol wreaking havoc, those 10% will take on average 10 years to seek help. And then only one out of 10 will actually get formal help. And out of those one out of 10, many don't have true long-term success in recovery. And, you know, for the ones that do, is their quality of life really good? Because I know for me, strong and obsessive thoughts for cravings uh, and cravings for alcohol all day, every day was my experience. And that's the experience of many people. Now there's some people who it works beautifully for. And that's who I would say they're the people who the root cause it's actually, it is a choice, hmm. but there there's many people who I am telling you the root cause is not a choice. It is a neuro disorder called alcohol use disorder. You cannot override neuro disorder. Um, with willpower, just like you cannot cause someone who was born with a disordered inner ear to override their inability to hear by just willing to hear. Um, And then the last thing I'll say is, you know, what I uncovered in all my research is, is that um, secondary research, not my own primary research, um, is that our system is based, our alcohol use, our, excuse me, our alcohol recovery system is based on what is called a practice-based approach. So it's based on, it's based on tradition, what we've always done, and opinion, what we think is right, which I can't think of two worse things to base something so important, you know, as alcohol recovery off of, right? The definition of insanity is doing the same thing, you know, twice and expecting a different result, yet result yet we still base our system on tradition 
Another wise person once said that everybody has an opinion, just like everybody has something else, which will remain <laughs> unnamed here, right? And that's not good. But yeah, that's the other thing we base our alcohol recovery system off of. And my whole, um, my whole invitation to everyone is that instead, we base our system off of what the research calls um, an evidence-based approach, which is based off of research, right? What I always explain research as what works for the most amount of people, the most amount of time, and in the best way possible. Hmm. And the good thing is that, you know, for the outliers of what, you know, the evidence you know, the evidence-based approaches for the outliers, hey, we, we can always do the 12-step, you know, sober by willpower model. And if that's somebody's choice, more power to them. I am behind you on that. And I'm here to advocate for the people, the majority of people who that does not work for. So yeah. sorry for talking so long, but that's my whole thing. <laughs> no, that's fine. Um, you know, I think there's a lot in there. So just going to try to uh, pick out some parts and pieces um, to, to kind of circle back to. So, you know, one, obviously you were struggling, you heard a TED talk and a light went off, right? And you're like, okay, I need to search this this out. Um, and you're searching out the Sinclair method. Um, so I'm not 100% familiar with it and I'm betting a lot of the listeners are not either, um, but it sounds like it's... Uh, got a medical component to it because you were going out and seeking medical assistance on this. Um, Deltroxone? Did I pick that? Naltrexone. Deltroxone. Um, and um, what is the basic premise of the Sinclair method, if you had to, like, give us the synopsis? Yeah, so basically, um, so the Sinclair method uses the medication Naltrexone, and so... You take 50 milligrams one hour before you consume alcohol, and it's an opiate blocker. So it's um, it sits on your receptor site. So if you have alcohol addiction, um, your brain just pushes way more endorphins um, as compared to somebody like my husband, for example, who does not suffer from alcohol addiction. And um, endorphins indicate to your subconscious, I need alcohol to survive being alone, having fun, uh, downtime, or whatever. And so basically over time, that neural pathway builds up that you need alcohol to survive, hence the strong and obsessive thoughts and cravings for alcohol all day, every day. And hence why you see somebody unable to control the quantity that they drink and the frequency in which they drink. And so um, uh, naltrexone is an opiate blocker. So it sits on those receptor sites. So your brain is pushing endorphins, but you're not receiving it at the receptor sites, right? And so then it's just you and it's the alcohol. It like, it kind of shuts the front door. That's an analogy that makes mm-hmm. sense. And so, yeah, with drinking on the Sinclair method over time, um, your brain, that neural pathway that you need alcohol to survive is not reinforced um, because you're not receiving those messages and um, neural pathway weakens your brain unlearns the addiction behavior, whatever you want to call it. And you're cured. Voila. So, you know, um, this would be in the um, medic MAT, right? Medically assisted type mm-hmm. treatment. Um, yeah. You know, and I, you know, I am an advocate of of that. Um, I am an advocate of harm reduction. We've talked about harm reduction on here before. Like, listen, if you are gonna, you know, if you're working on stopping drinking, right, and you're not going to go down the MAT route and you're not going to go to rehab and you're not going to do, you know, whatever. Right. And you're early on in your recovery and all you can do is call an Uber to get home rather than drive home drunk. Like to me, you've made a step in a direction, right? Like, and, and again, this probably isn't going to like make the AA crowd love me. Um, (laughs) you know, when I say things like that, but like harm reduction is a thing and MAT is a, is a real thing. Um, uh, and it is a, a valid method to recovery. Um, one that I, I think, um, will be explored more and more over time to your, to your point. Right. So like, you know, um, something else we've talked about on, on, on here a lot is that we are sort of 
I think in a new era of recovery modalities, uh, you know, for the longest time it was AA in a church basement behind the back. Uh, it was very hush hush. You didn't talk about it. It was almost as bad as drinking, right? Like there was, it was almost as sort of sketchy, um, for lack of a better word. Um, you know, I personally, I, that's how I started my recovery. Um, it is not how I recover anymore. And I, and I don't, I'm, I don't consider myself recovered. I've talked to some people that consider themselves recovered. I'm like in recovery because now it's, it's, it's less about alcohol and more about just being a better person every day for me. Like it's, it's kind of changed over time, but, um, you know, if I had known about this method back 11, 12 years ago, I might have thought about it, right? Like I was struggling with this, to your point, like volume and frequency of drinking. It was like, it wasn't controllable for a really long time. Like the volume was crazy and just the inability to shut it off, right? It, it could start at five in the afternoon and go to like three in the morning and if you're not that person i don't think people understand that concept like that doesn't make sense to a normal person that you could start drinking at like five in the afternoon and still be doing it at three in the morning (laughs) right at like a crazy volume and like and the other thing that doesn't make sense to people is like how did you drink that much, physically drink that much? Like, I can't drink that much anything throughout the day, right? But, like, we were able to drink this crazy volume. So, like, if there was something back then that I knew about, um, personally, I would be interested in it. And I I think it is uh, something that, you know, while somebody might say, well, that doesn't meet our standards of what recovery is, I don't know that that matters. Like, I just don't think it matters um, because what matters is like how the person who had a problem is now able to live their life in a better way, right? Like the whole goal is to get people to be able to contribute to society in a meaningful way. That I think is the goal of of what we're trying to do in our work, Uh, like you and your work and and me and what I do here. It's, It's how to get people living their best life. And whatever that looks like, I think matters less than, you know, the end result. That's just where I'm at. Yeah, you know what I think is? I think that people who, I think people who have never heard of this, um, I think it's almost kind of scary. And I think they're so, like, they're so one-track minded because they're terrified. They're white knuckling it. They're terrified of picking up that next drink. And they should be. Mm without the assistance of something like the Sinclair method or any of the other MATs, the other medication assisted treatments. And, and MATs are not the only thing like, you know, I, I consider, you know, that you need a really strong support system. Like for me personally, with my clients, I say, listen, you know, who are the people who are going to surround you and support you in your chosen path for alcohol recovery? Mm-hmm. Whoever is not going to support you, they can love you from a distance, in in my professional opinion. But at this time, when you're so vulnerable in recovery, it's not a good fit for right now. And, and, you know, you can have that conversation with them and let them know that you look forward to the day that you guys can reconnect. But, you know, um, that's my my professional opinion there but um there's other things it's not just you know the mat that are really important to set you up for success but but yeah i think that they're so they're so scared um and again they should be but i will say doesn't steps is it 13a doesn't it say until science comes up with a cure (laughs) so that's what i always kind of i'm i'm a little bit curious because it says it right in the steps you know and science did come up with a cure but and then there's also cognitive dissonance. You know, even some of my friends today, they will swear that alcohol addiction is only caused by, you know, trauma and experiencing some kind of trauma. And I'm just like, yeah, but that's not what the science has uncovered and brain scans have uncovered. And yeah, for some people, but there are a ton of people who have had no trauma, like Claudia Christian, the founder of the um, D3 Foundation and the, the, the TED Talk speaker. 
you know, she's like, I didn't have a crummy childhood. I had a very amazing childhood with an amazing supportive family. So I think that, you know, that's why they're really, you know, scared of it. And even to just be in that like mindset of white knuckling it, I can really sympathize and understand. And, you know, I just have nothing but, you know, love for those people. Yeah. I mean, listen, I think that, um, even in that war, you know, in the, I don't want to call it old recovery world, um, because it's, it still does work for people. There's something, I think I have a lot of thoughts about, uh, the old recovery world and what it is, and there's really great parts to it. Right. And I think the best part of it, um, if I just look back in my time in AA or any of these, these meetings that I've, I've suggested to people that I work with, I think there's something in there that works and it is the community aspect of it. Right. And, um, we were just talking a a little bit earlier about, uh, religion and church. And, you know, I think that a lot of people don't go to those places anymore. A lot of people don't have great social networks that don't exist on their phone. Um, and some of these spaces offer that to people that really need it. And I think that that's an important, an important part of that program or any of these programs, be it AA, SMART, Noble Steps, Refuge Recovery, whatever it is, right? I think that is sort of the magic part of it that gets then clouded by a bunch of weird dogma around it sometimes. And, um, you know, if you can couple that community part with science, uh, I think something really great can ha- start to happen, right? So to your point, like, don't just do the MAT, do these other things, right? Have the community, the right community around you, um, have the right activities to support you. You know, is that physical activity? Is that creative activity? Um, and then the other thing that I've always found is is useful for me is like helping other people, right? And that is like a kind of a tenant of the 12-step, the but like, it's it's a lot more than that. Like I think being active in your community and giving back, and you know, being a coach uh, for a youth soccer team, or going and packing bags for you know the food shelter, whatever it is. Like there's something that is gratifying about that too. It's like a purpose beyond just going to work. I think becomes very important for people. Um, and once you start to put all these pieces together, that's when you're like a whole person, <laughs> and that that's what we all are striving to be. Um, and that's why I say like, I'm never recovered because I can't quite get it all right. I don't think like, I think there's always a next level of that type of, um, person that you can become. Um, but like the MAT thing is, is helpful. I, I've, I, uh, I work with some people that have used different, uh, methods and, you know, without it, I don't know that they would have been able to get to to a place of recovery. Um, so I, you know, I know that early on you said that we might have a, like a a friction point, but no, not at all. Like, listen, I'm, I'm for anything that gets people to where they, they're supposed to be in life. I think it's, that's awesome. Yeah. Um, and I love that you're out there sort of, you know, advocating for this and for people to, to seek it out. I think it's very, uh, important message to get out there. I don't think it's out there enough. You know? No, it's not. It's not. You know, yeah. I can just say, you know, um, one thing I will say about it is like, you know, we all know, or we've all seen the stories of methadone clinics or, clinics or suboxone clinics for people with opiate issues, right? Like it is a thing that's happening in our state of New Jersey. Um, I myself mm-hmm. live around the corner from one such clinic and I know there was a lot of resistance in our community to have that here because there was, you know, I'd read some language like we don't want the junkies like in our neighborhood and stuff. And it's like, oh, li- the junkies, oh, I hate that language. <laughs> yeah, me too. Me too. And like, literally like, okay, if you're going to use that language, like, let's, let's try to place it correctly and say, well, there's people buying actual heroin and shooting heroin at the quick check down the road and you don't seem to care much at all about that 
right? You're you're more mm-hmm. concerned about this, like, you know, well managed, very secure, you know, facility that's trying to help people get better. Right, like it's like a weird outrage that happens, and it's misplaced and and misunderstood because people don't talk about it enough. And um, so again, I, I think your message is great. Um, well, it's just like the Sinclair method. Like people get so outraged, like you're going to give an alcoholic a drink, what? Because you have to drink on the Sinclair method for it to work. You have to drink alcohol. Yeah. You have to drink um, alcohol after you take your medication one hour afterwards. And the more you do it, the better you get until you're, you know, healed from the addiction. But, um, but yeah, like people get so outraged and I think it's, you know, I think verbiage is so important because, oh yeah, language that we use and verbiage that we use is so important. But yeah, we just have this underlying belief that like, you know, you're an addict, you're an alcoholic, you're, you're dirty, right? How long have you been clean? What, what are you talking about? I'm, I've been clean before I was even born because of what Jesus did on the cross 2000 years ago. Um, am I healed from a, a condition that I was born with? Yeah, I've, I've been healed for quite some time. Um, you know, just like my friend who has her, uh, you know, hearing aids, you know, she's, you know, been using her medical intervention or whatever for how long and it, and it heals her of, you know, what she was born with. Right. And so it's the same with, you know, alcohol addiction, but unfortunately we have a lot of work to do, uh, you know, in, you know, teaching people the truth. And I know that kind of sounds like I'm, I'm talking top down, but it's just, you know, everything that I've read in the research and it's, it's undeniable, you know, Mm -hmm. if you, uh, if you know, if you, if you know the research, you like, if you've read it and, um, also if you've experienced it and you've seen the miracle of Holy mother of God, like I am able to just drink this one glass of wine and I don't even like, I've had a couple sips and I don't really want the rest. Wait a second. I used to like go in like 25 drinks a night, drink from like, you know, 9am until 3am the next morning, as you were saying, like, it's just it's so crazy to experience that miracle and, and to see, you know, the Sinclair method has a 79% success rate across all the clinical trials here and in Europe, 11% were non-medication compliant, which I hate that terminology, but we'll go with it for here Mm. because I think you understand what I mean. So I would argue that we have a potential for an 89% effectiveness rate. And then for the remaining 11% to get us up to 100, we have five other medications that treat alcohol use disorder. And we have, AA, we have the 12 steps, we have, you know, coaching, we have, you know, therapy, if you can find a good therapist, you, you know, there's just so many, you know, there's so many ways and things and tools that we can use. And we have a potential to take less than one out of 10 people recovering, which is what we have now, um, to flip that on its head and get us up to darn near 100%, if not 100%. I mean, I know 100% is, we never say that as researchers, but, you know, I am just so confident. And it's all about, you know, like the Bible says that if you know the truth, the truth will set you free. And I like the passion translation even better because it says, if you accept the truth, you will experience true freedom into your life. So you need to know the truth because the Bible also says that we perish for a lack of knowledge, right? And you need to accept the truth hmm. to experience freedom. So Yeah, I love it. And and um how does this all play into your organization? Like how are you what is your organization doing just so that folks know and if they want to reach out, like what is she's recovered doing to to help this process along? Yeah, yeah. So it's where I help women find the path of alcohol recovery that actually works for them. And yes, I always get this question. I do work with men too, but I I do. My heart is, you know, for women um, because I am a woman. And so, you know, but, um, but yeah, I help them find the path of alcohol recovery that actually works for them. So really kind of teach them, you know, why just all my research, right? All my three years of research, well, it's more than that, but three years of formal research condensed into, you know, a small bite size of why has nothing worked for you so far? So you know that this is not your fault. Then next, you know, teaching all the different paths of alcohol recovery that are available to you, which we covered a little bit 
during your podcast episode here. Then, um, you know, discovering your goals with alcohol, not anyone else's goals. And there's Mm. a whole session for this because you would think it's like easy, but it's not because we have so much unlearning to do. Um, So your goals with alcohol, then connecting you with the path of treatment or excuse me, recovery, because I'm not a doctor, so I can't say treatment, Um, connecting you with the path of recovery that best aligns with your goals with alcohol. Again, not everybody else's goals, your goals with alcohol. And really connecting you with the the resources, the providers, because also finding providers that are actually going to support you in this. Like I told you in the beginning of this, you know, talk that we had tonight, it's next near to impossible. But guess what? I know them. Mm-hmm. So, anyways, connecting, um, you know, them with everything that they need to accomplish their goals with alcohol. And then, you know, the last step for me is really forgiving, learning how to forgive all those who have caused you harm along your journey of fighting to recover. You know, that was a huge thing for me because being denied treatment over and over, being told that I was trying to be my own doctor, being told that I was trying to go through the back door of her recovery, being fired from my therapist after five years, you know, and she was a social worker. Like they're the ones who are supposed to <laughs> teach you what all your options are and support you in your chosen option. It's in the code of ethics. I, I almost did become a social worker, um, you know, and so there's just, a, even today, like, you know, my friends, refusing to believe that the source of my addiction was not because of trauma. It's almost like the biggest gaslighting of the century because I had trauma. So I was a perfect victim of this narrative and this box to put me in. But trauma first, making the addiction better later, didn't work for me for nearly 10 years. But when I healed my addiction, my healing from my childhood trauma skyrocketed. I got so much better in such a short time. But anyways, I'm going on and on. But, um, but yeah, so just like, you know, forgiving, um, and maybe it seems a little bit silly that that would even bother me that a friend, you know, wouldn't validate me in that, but you know, my attachment style does lean anxious. So I do value the opinion of others. Anyways, little attachment theory humor there, but, um, but you know, it is, it is hard to hear because it's just hard for someone to, you know, not validate what you found to be the truth. And so just really learning how to forgive and release all those who you feel harmed by along your journey. So, yeah. so yeah. All right. So, um, great story, great thoughts around all of this, you know, recovery space and, uh, you know, again, a different view into it and one that I don't know that I've had a guest on the show talk about, um, anything like this. So I've spoken a little bit about harm reduction and a little bit about MAT, but nobody's really dove into it. So this was awesome. Um, just to step away from this space a little bit, I do like to ask all my guests, I have a soft spot for like me, anything, media, TV, radio, music, um, books, podcasts, whatever it is. Um, I always like to get sort of a feel for what you are into right now. Um, I think it is just as telling as like the childhood story. Um, the only thing that might be more telling is like your sneakers to me of what type of person you are. But um, so uh, any. Well, I wear Uggs, so. Okay. Uggs are fine. You know, that's, that's what, that, you know, um, I'm not going to say anything. Both my boys have their Ugg, uh like clogs. I don't know what they are. They're like a clog. <laughs> They're not a full boot. They're not a slipper. Um I think they would be like really hot to wear as slippers. They just look extremely hot to me. (laughs) Um, (laughs) So uh, anything that you're listening to, watching, reading that you'd like to recommend? Oh my gosh. Well, all of the above, but let's see. So for my music, I always have to go back to Bethel Church in California um, Jen Johnson and, uh, you know, Carrie Job and all those people and Chris Ballatin and um, Bill Johnson as preachers. And um, so, yeah, I just need to like really connect back to with my faith in God and how much God just loves me and died, suffered, died, rose again for my healing and for me to be whole. That's what salvation actually translates from, from the Greek. It means healing of your physical body and your finances and your relationships and your mind and all the things. 
And then something that I'm really interesting um, as of late is attachment theory, as I sort of referenced mm-hmm. um, a while ago. It's brought so much healing to me <laughs> in my marriage. Um, but yeah, just attachment theory. It's actually something that I want to go on to get a PhD someday. I always wanted to, but I want to study more um, in depth attachment theory as well as, you know, this whole alcohol recovery thing. But, but yeah. Okay, good. Um, so this week, what I'm going to, again, this is getting increasingly hard, but I do try to keep up on stuff. Um, I spend most of my free time, like watching television shows or, you know, reading, um, or listening to music. So this week though, I am going to recommend the movie on Netflix with Julia Roberts, uh, leave the world behind. Um, okay. it is, uh, you know, um, an interesting movie. I, I guess it's apocalyptic in nature. So if that's like not your genre, it's probably not your type of movie. Um, uh, it's a good movie, um, for a Netflix movie. I've, I've always struggled like with the Netflix movies. Some of them have been okay. And, but this one was, this one was good. So, um, I like Did you it. ever get the ones with the voiceover where like clearly their original one was like in Spanish or yeah. something and Yeah, and it's I mean the there's some voice actors. There's some great ones um in that in that uh one that my favorite actually one of my favorite shows on Netflix was Money Heist which was completely dubbed. And um mm. they a lot of them annoy me and I can't get into it because of that. Like it's like a mismatch of the face and the voice. Yeah, <laughs> and I can't quite. My yeah. brain doesn't quite register it normally, but with Money Heist, yeah. for whatever reason, I was able to overcome it almost immediately. And I think it's just a testament to the writing on that show. Um, it's such a, a great Money Heist is a great um, like crime bank robbery kind of thing, and it's just so well done. And I think they just actually released a follow up, like a prequel to it about one of the characters in particular um it's a pretty big thing i I believe it's a south american show it could be could be spain i don't remember but um if you haven't watched that show it's a fun one you know it's again if it's your thing crime shows i don't know um but yeah those are my recommendations now for the week now i got two uh (laughs) so um Again, you know, Crystal, thank you for being on. I appreciate the time. Um, I'm sure that your story will resonate with folks. And, you know, maybe you'll get some people reaching out to hear more about, you know, your ideas around recovery. Because not everybody's going to just fall into the, you know, whatever we think is socially, you know, acceptable today, right? Like, I think there's more out there. And I love that you're sort of exploring that and, and pushing it along. So, yeah. yeah. No, thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure to be here. Great, right. And um, I will have all of Crystal's uh, links in the notes, and we will see you here next week. Thanks. Thanks.